You're listening to TIP. Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is Brent Snow. Brent teaches decision-making to corporate executives through his popular course, Decision Mojo. In this episode, we talk about how to improve our decision-making by recognizing our cognitive biases and taking steps to mitigate their effect. Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, Ray Dalio all come up in our conversation as we seek to understand what makes them such great decision-makers and how we can apply their lessons to our own life. Brent also gets me to tell a somewhat humorous story about how the sunk cost trap came into play in a decision that impacted me and my family and what I learned from that experience. Brent also talks about how a medical diagnosis pushed him to apply everything he knows about decision-making to his own treatment plan and what he learned about decision-making having gone through that process. If you're a student of decision-making, there's a lot of knowledge and wisdom packed into this one. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brent as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Brent Snow. You're listening to The Good Life by the Investors Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and values that help you live a meaningful, purposeful life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well-lived. Brent Snow, welcome back to The Good Life. Oh, thank you, Sean. It is always a pleasure. Well, it's great to have you back. And today our topic is decision-making. And you've been a guest on our Decision-Making Mastermind shows with Jake Taylor and Annie Duke. And today we're going to have the opportunity to just kind of dive into decision-making in a deeper way, especially looking into your background and, and how you've come to decision-making. So I thought I'd start with just how did you get into decision-making? You teach decision-making to corporate executives. You've developed a course called Decision Mojo, which I've had the uh, good fortune to facilitate and bring to some of my clients. So how did you get introduced to, to decision-making? Well, you know, in some ways, Sean, I think I've always been a student of decision-making at least as I look back over my life and think about things I've been interested in, and perhaps I'm just creating a coherent narrative of my life. But in earlier work that I did, I was an instructor for Outward Bound. And oftentimes, a lot of the work you do when you're teaching an Outward Bound course is teaching groups and teams and individuals' decision-making skills in various different contexts. In the outdoors, as a very immediate and fast teacher, the consequences of bad decisions are not something that typically happens six months down the road. They happen pretty immediately. And so we would often work with teams and groups and individuals around in, given a certain set of contextual situations or environmental conditions or whatever it was that we were trying to do. How would you come together as a group and make decisions? How would you evaluate what was going on around you and use that information to make what was going to be a smart decision, given that there's always risk in that context as well? And that didn't necessarily become clear to me. I mean, I just saw that as a, an interesting piece of what we were teaching in that work until a number of years later when I was running these high-end organizational simulations for companies. These were typically business simulations, organizational simulations where teams of individuals were making decisions. And in fact, the reason I was even doing this work around simulations is it was a way of bringing some of the intensity and the power of what happens in an outward bound course, bringing it indoors where you have an ability to condense time and space and make a lot of decisions and get immediate consequence and feedback back. Simulations do that. So I'd be running these simulations with teams of executives. And in many cases, they'd have very similar sorts of conditions in front of them as they're making decisions, two teams side by side. And yet one team would be making qualitatively and quantitatively better the decisions than the other. And I just started being curious about that. I was like, what's the difference? Why is it that one team somehow is outperforming another team, whereas on paper, they seem like relatively equivalent teams? And so I started to dig into it. And around that time, I came across a book. This is in the mid-90s, I think. I came across a book called Decision Traps. And I just found it somewhere in a bookstore and I read it. And I thought, wow, this is such fascinating stuff. And so I just started to read. I started to read more. I started to watch what was going on in the various simulations. I started taking notes. And it took me a while to come around to the idea that this was a skill that really absolutely could and should be taught within organizational contexts. I'd obviously been doing that in the outward bound contexts. But and it was probably, I don't know, eight or nine years later, I said, you know, there, there needs to be some really good 
teaching around this in courses. And so I figured somebody must be doing that. So I looked out and into the universe, if you will, and said, who's teaching good courses on decision-making from a consulting perspective or organizational training perspective to leaders and managers? And I found very, very little. There were a couple of universities that had it embedded in some small way within a uh, typically an MBA program. But even then, it wasn't even directly focused on decision-making. Wharton had some stuff, but it was a full semester course, not something that was easily accessible to people inside an organization. And I was surprised. I thought, wow, why isn't it that anybody's really taken this on? The only thing that I re- only stuff that I was really able to find tended to be more focused on problem solving. And there were a few courses that in the midst of talking about problem solving would talk about decision making like it's a rational seven step process. You know, you define the problem, you collect data, then you evaluate the data, then you and it's this whole sort of linear seven step process. And yet the more I was learning about decision making, the more I was realizing that people don't typically, even if that's what gets taught, people don't typically follow that kind of a process when making most of their decisions. Even if they've been taught it, they think, yeah, on one level, yeah, I should be doing that. But that sort of process just doesn't come naturally to folks. And so, so anyways, I just made a decision actually to create a course around decision-making and, and proceeded to go out there and pretty much everything that had been written that I could get my hand on about decision-making, both in the journals and the academic journals and also in terms of published books, and really set about creating a what I consider kind of a masterclass that can be done in relatively short time. The thing that I discovered that was perhaps something that caused it to take a lot longer for me to really get there than I had intended with a team of folks that I kind of brought together was that it's not an easy skill to teach. In fact, that probably explained to some extent why others hadn't really taken it on in a big way, because it's something that goes on inside your head. It's not an observable skill in a direct way, except in oftentimes the output of a decision, but the actual process of getting to a decision, at least on an individual level, is not typically very observable. On a group level, it can be much more observable, but it's also a complex skill. It requires both levels of rational analysis, depending on the decision, and intuition slash judgment, where you're just bringing previous experience and previous knowledge and what we even sometimes just call that sort of intuition and gut feel to a particular decision. And all of that combines into allowing you to ultimately make a decision. So it took longer to put this together than I'd intended, but it also gave us a lot a lot of opportunity to really stress test a lot of our own ideas around it. And one of the things that became clear as we were doing this work around how do we teach this skill in a way that's accessible to folks and really can land in a practical way in their lives is that there are a number of decision traps that also can get in the way of making the most optimal decisions. And we oftentimes will fall into these traps without even being aware that we're doing it. And they cause us to go down a path around a particular decision that isn't necessarily the best path in a whole lot of different ways. So I know that's a long answer, Sean. Well, there's a lot there and I want to get into the decision traps. I also want to just reflect a little bit on a couple of things you said that I think are really important. And one is this idea that decision-making is a critical skill, and we don't often have the opportunity to learn about decision-making in school. This is something that Annie Duke talked about in one of our mastermind discussions, and she actually is one of the founders and is on the board of of an organization called the Alliance for Decision Education, which I believe is the mission is to bring this curriculum into schools, which I think is fantastic because decision-making is such an important skill. When you think about the good life, living the good life, when you think about investing decisions, when you think about parenting decisions, all these decisions that have such an impact on our lives, if we can get a little bit better at decision-making, it can have such a, a huge impact on our life. I completely agree. I think I've often thought of decisions and making decisions is, is where it's kind of the locus of action in your own life. It's the locus of where you're actively participating in where you go, what you do, what your life becomes, what happens. It's not a passive activity. And perhaps that's one of the reasons I'm drawn to it is that in some ways, where you take action in the world is through the decisions that you make. No decision is a decision, but that's a form of like non-action in certain respects. But it is also, it's like problem solving I'm going, to, I'm going to digress a little bit, but people say, well, what's the difference between problem solving and decision making? And I often think of problem solving 
as an activity where you're looking for causes of a potential problem or one way or another. But ultimately, it leads you to a place where you have to make a decision. You've got now a couple of different avenues that are in front of you in terms of how do you solve a particular problem. Ultimately, you still have to make a decision. Which way do you go? Do you go left? Do you go right? Do you do X? Do you do Y? And so the action orientation of decision-making also very much appeals to me. And I feel like each and every one of us, each and every day, is making hundreds of decisions that impact the quality of our life, the direction of our life. Some of those decisions are big and they're consequential. Some of those decisions are small and in the moment, but in their sum total, they add up to some sort of a big consequence. So for example, I've been working from home and as we all have in, during this period of time, and in my household, which is four of us at the moment, I've developed the reputation as a drive-by snacker because my office is not terribly close, is not terribly far from the kitchen and home office. And so I'll, you know, as like a little mini break for myself, I'll jump up and go by and, you know, grab something just to kind of break the flow and whatever it is. And if I don't make careful decisions about my drive-by snacking, you know, I'm going to come out of all of this 50 pounds heavier. So I'm making decisions, pre-decisions to put things out that are likely snacks and are easy for me to grab that are healthy. So carrots and grapes and stuff like that versus any number of other things that I, I could easily snack on. And so, you know, that's a decision. And that one could say that's just a small decision. And it's not a big one to really think about. But if you think about that decision in the context of making it many, many, many times, it adds up to a much bigger decision. That's a great example. And another seminal event, I would say, in, in decision-making in the last 10 or 15 years was the publication of Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which, which came out sort of in the middle of what you were talking about, kind of your run-up to developing this course, Decision Mojo. Kahneman wrote this book. It's, it's a rather long book. I, I can't remember, 400 pages or something like that. And what surprised me is a, for a book that long, but also that dense, he's, he's, a, he's got a lot of research in there. He's a former Nobel Prize winning economist. He's very well known, very well spoken now about decision making. But that was a New York Times bestselling book. A lot of people picked it up. It really caught fire in the investment world. It was big in academia. And one of the things he talks about in there is exactly what you're talking about, this idea of decision traps and kind of heuristics. And so can you talk about what are these things? Why are they a part of our decision process? And how should we think about them? How can we use them either to our advantage or to mitigate if they're, if they're having a negative impact on our decision making? Yeah, that's a great question, Sean. So decision traps or some do refer to them and they call them cognitive biases. We, for a while, called them cognitive traps. Others call them heuristics that our brains just basically employ to make sense of reality in one way or another. In fact, there's some really good work out there around kind of mental shortcuts or heuristics. And in fact, I would also say, while Kahneman's work obviously has been very, very influential, there have been folks who have also written about the efficacy of mental heuristics and how we can't get through the world without these kind of shortcuts in one way or another. And they've had a bit of a you know, interesting debate back and forth around that. But essentially what these traps or heuristics or biases or whatever you want to call them are, are they're just functions of natural brain processes that we all have to deal with complexity in our lives, to deal with what's going on around us, to uh, make sense and be able to take action. And some of them are very, very evolutionary. And so there are traps that exist today, but really are, are the function of us, you know, the part of our brains that are wired to for survival and growing up on the savannah. And, you know, we hear a quick noise and we turn our head and we react to something. And if we didn't do that in some sort of a way or didn't make a very quick association between one piece of information and another, we might not, not recognize that that rustle in the bushes is a lion and that, you know, we needed to act in order to survive. In all of the work that we've done around the traps, there are many, many, many of them. If you go to Wikipedia and type in decision traps, there's going to be over a hundred that come up. And, you know, some of them are fairly specific and arcane. You know, you might bump into it in a rare, rare occasion. And they're, they're fine gradations sometimes on some larger themes. But there are some consistently large traps, if you will, or, or consistently um, regular traps that will oftentimes impact decisions that we make in many of our organizational contexts or our individual contexts. And so as we really dug into that, we did some work around categorizing those traps and then really looking at through the research, what were the ones that were most likely to occur 
in typically in organizational contexts. I, I think we can obviously draw a larger circle in our lives and think across a lot of different instances in our lives, but in organizational contexts. And then we, we thought, okay, is there a way in which these cluster together? And so we did in that work realized that there were certain traps that directly related to seeking simplicity, simplifying the complexity of our world and doing it in various different ways that made it easier for us to make decisions. And so it would more narrowly define information that we looked at or cause us to only look at certain information and not other information. Then there was other traps. These are not mutually exclusive or completely and utterly distinct. There were also traps that had to do with what we call undoing uncertainty. And so some of it was just our brain's desire for simplification, sort of saving the the energy that was going to be taken to make a decision. Others were, we don't like uncertainty. And so if we could, in one way or another, reduce uncertainty, that seemed like a good thing. Well, it leads to certain decision traps. And then the last one is just all of our natural tendency to pursue patterns. Our brains, us as human beings, are pattern-seeking creatures. And we very, very much are, without even being aware of it in many cases, looking for patterns, making sense of patterns, creating patterns to essentially go forth in the world in one way or another. And so we clustered the traps into those categories and then really identified 12 specific traps that are the more likely ones that are going to occur within those three categories. Let's go a little deeper into some of these traps. Which one is, you know, maybe pick one that's that's more prevalent, that comes up more often in decision-making and, and let's talk about it. What is it? How can we overcome it? Well, one of the ones that clearly gets written about, talked about, and is, I would just say, a huge watch out trap for anybody who is in an organizational context, particularly as they go up through the ranks in the organization, is overconfidence. And that is essentially, and by the way, that's in our undoing uncertainty category of traps. You know, if you believe you know more than you do, or if you believe that whatever the experience you've had is adequate for whatever the decision is that you need to make, you don't have to be as uncertain about things in one way or, one way or another. One of the big ones that uh, clearly is something that within an organizational context, we all need to be aware of, and that is overconfidence. And particularly, the more successful you are, the more successful you become in an organization as you move up, you tend to believe that which got you there must be your skill, must be your great knowledge or your ability to make good decisions, whatever it might be. And so we tend to be overconfident about either what we know or that in one way or another, our ability to make a decision in a particular context is better than other people's ability to make a decision in, in particular contexts. And, you know, there are certain kinds of places where it's really likely to occur when you're estimating or forecasting. So you estimate how something is going to happen. You make a forecast and it's either a judgment call in a context of ambiguity where you're just really tapping into your intuition or even just based on limited information. When we're setting schedules, oftentimes overconfidence shows up. By the way, this is a trap I have to watch out for myself. It is deeply related to expertise. In fact, the more expertise you tend to have in a particular area, the greater the likelihood is if that trap actually showing up for you. And so, so it's a big one. And can we catch ourselves? Can we be aware of our own overconfidence? Well, as I indicated for myself, I've had people around me in my life say, Brent, do you really know that? Do you understand what you're saying right now? Do you, are you saying that because you actually have the answer or that you actually have had that experience or are you just overconfident? And so I've had people call me out on it. But I also think that when you become aware that that might be a tendency that you or your team might fall into, you can put in place things that help you avoid that trap. And, you know, part of it is by just recognizing that when you're saying something or you're believing something strongly to just say, am I being overconfident? Question your own thing. And one of the great skills that I think is being conscious about stating what you don't know as actively and as strongly as you are stating what you do know. There's a one, and I don't remember which U.S. military general it was, but he was well known for saying, when you come to me, tell me what you know, tell me what you don't know. And then only then tell me what you think. And that was his way of reducing the likelihood of overconfidence in his direct reports. Because in the act of them having to tell him what they didn't know, they had to reconcile that. Or they didn't have to reconcile it. They had to at least recognize that in a specific way. And so that, to me, is, is one of the big traps. And I think you can read about it in various different contexts where as executives become more and more experienced, they also tend to believe their own view and their own perspective. This also, by the way, relates very much to another big trap, which is confirming evidence. We tend to 
unconsciously seek evidence which supports something which we already believe. In fact, I, I was running running a workshop once, and I had the senior executive who's the sponsor of the program. As we after we had gone through the twelve traps, come up to me and he said, "Brent, can I just address the group?" And everybody in the room reported to, to this particular executive, and I said, "Of course, of course." And so he brought up at that point we had all the traps identified on on cards before we had to create a virtual version of this. And he brought up three cards and he held them up against his head. So if you imagine that card game where you put cards up in front of your head and he had these three traps organized in front of his head and he revealed them one by one. He said, you know, this is, I've had a bit of an epiphany here. He said, I realized that I overconfidently make snap judgments and then I seek confirming evidence from all of you to back up my my snap judgments. And uh, he went on to say, you know, and he, and he did this with a, with a sense of humor. He said, I realized that, you know, many of you probably have been put into a position in the past where I've already made some sort of a quick decision, snap judgment. I'll talk about that in a minute, by the way, but where now you're feeling like I'm looking for information to support that decision. He said, my job is to make the best decision on behalf of the organization or help us collectively make the best decisions on behalf of the organization. In some cases, in many cases, your job is to also help me make those best decisions as well. And if you ever perceive that I'm doing that, if I'm overconfidently making snap judgments and then seeking confirming evidence from all of you, just uh, hold your hand up in front of your head like like I held up these cards here. He said, don't make it the shape of an L, by the way, and, uh, and say, hey, boss, hey, boss, are you perhaps overconfidently? And he said, I promise I will try to have a sense of humor about it. And I will definitely hear you, definitely hear you. And it will give me a pause, which was a really good one. And I, and I promise as well, I'll, I'll wait at least a week before I fire you. Everybody laughed. He said, no, really. My job is to do that. And if, you, if I'm going down a path and you think I'm not making maybe the best decision and I'm doing this, then you, you need to help me. You need to help me in relationship to that trap. And so what he was doing is he was very much requesting and empowering his team to challenge him when they thought maybe he was a bit overconfident in, in a particular situation. He also then, I thought this was a real, I mean, it was an act of humility on his part to put that out there in that way. But he also then basically said, hey, I want you all to go do the same thing with your teams. I want you to go and identify what are your kind of watch out traps? What are your ones that maybe are likely watch outs for you, which may not be the same ones. They very well could be different traps. And task your teams to be allies to you in helping you not either fall into those traps yourself or take the team into those traps. So I thought that was a lovely story, but it was a way for him in, in somewhat of a group and structural way to at least somewhat mitigate the potential of the overconfidence trap impacting him. The overconfidence trap is one that I find showing up a lot in my career, in my life, in my outlook. It's obviously, like you said, very prevalent in organizations. One challenge I see in the overconfidence trap is that we often look for confidence in leaders. We often want leaders to be confidently moving towards some future state. And there's, I guess you might say, a certain bias towards looking for leaders that project that confidence. And what I hear you saying is a good decision maker, a leader who's a good decision maker, they may have confidence, but they also have the certain humility of understanding that they, they may be overconfident and that they need to listen to other perspectives, maybe even the outsider objective view. Maybe you could talk about that because I find that when I feel like overconfidence may be coming into a decision of mine, one of the things that I've done in the past is to say, well, what's a typical outcome or sometimes is referred to as a base rate? Like how, how probable is it that this is actually going to happen? You mentioned schedules and projects being overconfident. You know, this project is going to take three months. I guess the question you'd ask as a decision maker there, if you were going to assume that is, well, how often does a project like this take three months? And you may find out that you're projecting that it, you're going to land in the 99th percentile of efficient projects, and maybe that's not such a good idea. So how can we um, thread the, the knife's edge there between confidence and overconfidence and, and being seen as a leader? Great question. I have a cartoon sitting here uh, up on my bulletin board. It's a, somewhat of an archetypal cartoon of a bunch of lemmings all following a head lemming who is basically turning back to all the rest of the lemmings and say, I know, I know exactly where we're going, follow me, and they're all headed towards a cliff. And I mean, it's a really good question, Sean, because you're right, we are drawn to leaders who project an air of confidence, who 
let us know, or at least somehow signal to us that they know where to go. They know what they're doing in one way or another. And we think, I wouldn't necessarily want to follow a leader who's uncertain, who's unsure. And so what we coach and counsel folks to do in this work is to be able to make decisions based on the best available information and data and facts that they have at the time, but also to engage those around them in a process of discovery and learning together and recognizing that they don't know all the answers yet and that they're going to be figuring them out as they go along and that this is a decision that we're making best based on the best available knowledge and data that we have at the time. But it's also possible that three months from now, six months from now, we learn something new. We have to change course, you know, not to be falsely confident because people, smart people will see through that on some level and will recognize that it's a bit of the blind leading the blind. And they'd much rather you as a leader, you know, essentially say, state what you know, state what you don't know. And then in the context of that, also then share, what do you think? What do you think? What's the judgment call that you're making in that particular context? I just read a recent uh, article about Jeff Bezos, and he may come up once or twice in our conversation because I know both you and I are somewhat students of what he does and, and pay attention to kind of how he thinks about decision making. But this was in relationship to his efforts to send people into space and his learning and work around this. And so this isn't so much about Amazon.com as we know it. This is more about Blue Origin. His leadership of Blue Origin has very much been about collaborating with a whole team of other experts to try to figure out ways to do things that nobody has ever figured out before, and then to make decisions consistent with that. And his ability to lead that process, even though he is not a rocket scientist, if you will, or somebody who has that deep expertise, has a lot to do with his ability to assemble the experts and then get them to collaborate together in acts of discovery and experimentation and making decisions to move forward within certain parameters of risk that essentially push the envelope in terms of what we're able to do in one way or another. And to me, that kind of leadership is very much the kind of leadership that all of us are needing to engage in as we go forth in the world. Because we are in many cases, living in times where change and technology and other things are, are causing us to have to make decisions where we don't necessarily know all the consequences of those decisions and to learn quickly from those decisions. I know Annie Duke talks a lot about how do we get real-time data and information back, break big decisions down into smaller decisions and do it in a way that allows us to quickly learn and adjust and adapt versus confidently believe that we know everything we need to know to make a decision and then just go forth blindly from that point forward. And I know I'm overstating it, but leadership today is as much acknowledging the uncertainty and being willing to be open to learning and surrounding yourself with tools and processes and people who are engaged in that same journey with you so that you're able to get real-time information, you're able to adjust, you're able to continually make better and better decisions as you go forward. Well, let's, let's move on to another set of decision traps. You mentioned that the idea of overconfidence and confirming evidence is about simplifying. Is that right? Overconfidence and confirming evidence are the, in the, what we call the undoing uncertainty category. And so think about it. You know, you're overconfident. You, you know what you need to know. You don't have to worry about stuff you don't know when you make a decision. And confirming evidence is you only go out there and look at evidence that already confirms what you believe. And so therefore, it doesn't challenge anything that you currently know. And so guess what? You, you undone the uncertainty because you don't like the uncertainty. Whereas if you went out and specifically looked for disconfirming evidence, and actually, let me go back to somebody we both pay a lot of attention to, not Jeff Bezos, but Warren Buffett. I have read, and I think you have read as well, that he believes one of his biggest watchout traps, just to talk a little bit more about confirming evidence, is confirming evidence that personally, particularly because he's been incredibly successful over the years, that he could be one of those people who overconfidently makes a judgment call and then without even being aware of it, privileges information that actually helps support that judgment call that he's made. And because he's aware of our huge tendency to privilege information that, that is in line with what we already believe without even being aware that we're doing it, he purposely has people in his world whose entire job it is is to bring him disconfirming evidence. His entire job is to counter the argue the opposite. So if he'll make a proclamation that I think we should make this investment, 
their job is to essentially be the counterpoint for that, to tell them why all the reasons why they think that's a bad idea, why that would be a bad investment. Because he knows that without those other voices, it would be too easy for him to only pay attention to limited data sets. And so his awareness of the tendency to A, be overconfident and B, seek confirming evidence in support of that has led him to create structures in his world, people around him, and also just this extra level of consciousness about the danger of this so that he's less likely to have him make a bad decision. And I think that people say you can't avoid these traps. I disagree. I think he, and one of the reasons he's successful as an investor is because he's recognizing that that trap's at play or potentially at play, and he does very specific things to mitigate the likelihood of it occurring. I think one of those people in his life that serves that purpose is Charlie Munger. And yes. the way that Warren talks about their relationship is that Warren brings ideas to Charlie. And I think he's described Charlie as Mr. No. He often says no. And the reason he's saying no is he's bringing up objections. He's, he's another independent mind that brings a different perspective. And together, when they have a discussion in a safe environment like that, where they trust each other and they are bringing their independent opinions, they get to a better decision eventually. So having a trusted group, I think Annie talks about this too, a truth-telling group. It Mm -hmm. could be one person. It could be several people that you can go to, to, like you said, bring up the disconfirming evidence, point you in that direction, maybe point out when you may be overconfident and you know, help you see where some of these traps may be showing up in your decision-making. I think that's great. Well, let's move on. What are some other traps that we should be aware of that are, that are prevalent and that we might, we might benefit from understanding at a deeper level? Well, Sean, one I want to have us in a good-humored way talk about is uh, what we identify as loss aversion slash sunk costs. We actually put those two together because they're very, very related, loss aversion and sunk costs. I mean, they are separate traps on some level. But for the purpose of a lot of the teaching that we do, they have very similar dynamics and they show up in very similar kinds of ways. And I know, Sean, that you know you and I have, as we've gotten to work together and, and done things over the years, told different stories in our lives about how that particular trap has, has showed up. And you have a wonderful story that you tell about sunk cost, loss aversion sunk cost in your life that I, I just have always loved. So my interaction with sunk cost and loss aversion. I've had many, but you know, one one sort of that comes to mind. It goes back about seven or eight years. And at the time my kids were younger. They were four or five, six years old at the time. And in my backyard here in Seattle, I had a patch of grass that wasn't growing very well. It can be difficult to get grass to grow in Seattle for various reasons. It was in the north side of my house, so it didn't get as much sunlight. There was a lot of shade. We have so much rain. I think we have too much rain. I think that's part of the problem is that you can just get soaked. The soil gets kind of flushed out of all the minerals and you can really geek out on the science of growing grass in, in anywhere, especially Seattle. And, and I did. I started to geek out because I really wanted to have this patch of beautiful green grass. You know, I just had this vision of beautiful green grass. And so I talked to a number of various experts and, and one of the uh, experts told me, that advised me, you know, put a sprinkler system in because in the summer we have these long stretches of dry weather and the grass really can just completely die out. It doesn't get a chance to kind of grow through the summer like in various other parts of the United States. So I invested in a $3,000, maybe $4,000 system to put in so I could water my grass through the summer and kind of keep it healthy and really grow it. Now, now through this time, my kids of course, are complaining about this kind of muddy patch of grass in my backyard. And they really want some green grass, some, a place to play some baseball and throw the Frisbee around and just have a wonderful family time. And of course, that's what my wife wanted to. And my kids were telling me, why don't you put in some artificial turf, dad? You know, They were beginning more familiar with some of these parks in, in Seattle and other cities that have really upped their, their artificial turf. And it was becoming something that they were more familiar with to go play on, on this wonderful grass that was with a rubber embedded in it. And it's always fresh and it's always green. And, and I just was rejecting that. I thought, you know, I can grow this grass. And so I put the sprinkler system in and the $4,000 investment. And it's still, I still couldn't get the grass to grow. We got a dog at the time. The dog started tearing it up. Even with the sprinkler system, my grass wasn't growing. 
a couple of years go by of me trying to get this thing to work and my kids, as they grow older and they're missing out on all these summers of spending time in my backyard, they say, dad, why don't you just put in the artificial turf? And, and I, I couldn't do it because I'd already spent money on the sprinkler system. And that investment, I was just so emotionally tied to that investment. I did not want to consider that a loss that I had just thrown that money away. I had already invested in it. So I'm going to make it work somehow. And, I, and I, around that time, I remember having a conversation with you, kind of telling you this story. And, and you sort of pointed out that, you know, might there be a little loss aversion here, Sean, you know, as you think about this decision? Sorry, a little sunk cost here, Sean. And it got me thinking. You know, well, can I just let go? And, and and what we teach in decision making around sunk costs is what you really want to do is make the best decision moving forward with with the resources you have and the information you have. And whatever has happened in the past is is gone. You have to let it go. It shouldn't impact your future decision. The fact that I'd spent the three thousand and if I really want grass in my backyard and if now artificial turf is the right way to go, I should just do it. And after much coaching and I had to really coach myself up and took a couple of years, but you know, I made the decision to put the artificial turf in. It was another investment. But when I did, my kids were happy. My wife was happy. The family was happy. The dog was happy. Now, when you come to my house, there's always green grass. It's just beautiful. It's been a wonderful thing for my family. And I don't know if I would have made the decision if I hadn't understood the sunk cost. I probably would still be trying to make that grass work because I didn't want to be the guy that had the sprinkler system over that spread water over the artificial grass and have everyone tell me, well, why do you have a sprinkler system? Or the artificial (laughs) turf over a sprinkler system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's my story. And I overcame it, you know, through your help and by understanding decision making, I overcame this trap I was in. And it got me to realize that when I see sunk costs popping up in my decision-making, I do go back to that story. And I remind myself that I shouldn't take into account what's happened in the past and to make the best decision moving forward. And it's, and it's always served me well. And, and to a large extent, one of, the, one of the skills we teach is to recognize when a present choice is being made to justify a past choice. And so part of your energy and effort in trying to keep that thing you had made that decision in the past to put in a sprinkler system. And now the next year and the year after that, you're making additional decisions to invest more and try to get it to work and, and it's not working. And I'm sure at some point along the way, it's becoming clearer and clearer to you that this isn't just not going to work, but you're still going back and making the decision to justify that past choice because I'm going to make this thing work. I'm going to see this thing through. No, we're not going to put. When you told me that story, I thought, man, there are some costs that play there. And the trick, of course, is it's a play in all of our lives. It's a very powerful trap. And you know, there's all sorts of ways in our lives where we, we allow the drag of a decision that we made in the past to then influence a decision we're now making in the present, even though it's no longer relevant. So there are a couple of key skills that we teach. And then I want to just kind of give you one that I have used as really, and I'll call it a heuristic, if you will, for myself, but it's something we also teach. And that is obviously, to a certain extent, sunk costs are about the past. Decisions can't change the past, but good decision means focusing on what will create the best results from this point going forward. And even though you may have invested in this or that in the past, you know, if you had said, what's going to create the, the happiest kind of backyard for my kids going forward, it didn't have anything to do with the sprinkler system. It had everything to do with creating the backyard that was going to be one that they could play in, et cetera, et cetera. And even if you had gone back and said, all this time and energy I'm putting into trying to get the lawn to grow when it's not going to grow, what if I freed up that time by not going back to that sunk cost and said, instead put it into building a, a ramp for your son, as I know you did, and other things like that. And so it's, it's that mindset. But the number one thing that I believe is a way to catch yourself and catch the potential of sunk cost being at play is just a very simple thing where if you've invested time, energy, emotion, money, resources in something, it could be a relationship, it could be a backyard in your case, it could be some project, it could be some IT initiative that's going on in your organization, it could be any number of different things. When you've put time and energy and emotion into something and now you're faced with a decision that could involve moving away from that or letting it go, then be aware that sunk costs is likely to rear its head up and influence your decision-making. 
So if it's a decision where you've invested time and energy and resources or anything like that, I'll watch out. That's a red flag condition, what I call red flag conditions. And there are a couple of other authors who do that too. I, you know, it's like, in fact, one of the authors who had, had been doing some writing about decision-making has this wonderful analogy about you're on a beach and the lifeguards have gone and put red flags in places where there might be strong undercurrent. And so it doesn't say do not swim here because there might be undercurrent. It's just a red flag that says, be aware when you swim out here in this particular area of the beach, just because of the configuration of the sand underneath or whatever, there might be a potential undercurrent. And so it's a warning. It's a warning to you to be aware in this particular situation that if you swim out there, you've got to be extra careful or be at least be aware that the current could pull you in one way or the other. And I love that. I love that analogy because I think a red flag condition for sunk cost traps is where you've invested time and energy and money or resources or emotion or any number of things in something specifically. And now you're thinking about making a decision that takes you in a different direction and sunk cost is going to come up. I love that analogy of the riptide and the, and the red flag. It reminds me of Mark Leonard at Constellation Software. That's a Canadian private equity company that they do a lot of deals and he's uh-huh. got various teams working on different deals because they're they grow through acquisitions. They buy software companies and take over management. And I was reading Mark's, he's got wonderful investor letters, sort of like Warren Buffett and, and Jeff Bezos. And I was reading one recently and he talked about the warning that he has, the red flag that he had to put into his deal flow process. He noticed that if a team spent longer on a deal, they started to justify doing the deal in ways that they yep. that they wouldn't otherwise. And he had a very stringent, very strict hurdle rate of the return that he was looking for any deal. And he wanted the team to find deals that would get over this hurdle rate. But if a team had spent you know nine months, a year on a deal, just because it took longer for various reasons, they would start to justify a lower hurdle rate just because they'd spent so much time on it. And he had to fight against it. We all have to do that. That's a great example. The more to time and energy, it's like if you were to do an XY axis and imagine an XY axis. On the Y axis, it's the amount of energy, emotion, money, resources. It's, it's basically it's the investment in a particular project or initiative or deal or anything like that, the amount. And on the X axis, it's the emotional attachment to that investment that plays out. And so the more you put in, the more you have an emotional attachment to it, the harder it is to walk away from, the more sunk costs are going to come into play. Let me share another trap, Sean, that I've had to be aware of in my own life. I'm aware, I mean, I'm aware there are certain watch out traps for me. And I think one of the things that helps any of us from a decision-making standpoint is being conscious of your own watch out traps, if you will. So we typically will do some work in a, in a seminar or workshop where folks have to really think about what are my watch out traps. And it's in the context of also getting input from others because we can't always necessarily be super aware of our own traps. And so input from others helps us in that regard. But although people are pretty smart, they oftentimes know what they are. And I know one of the watch out traps for me in this last year, as I've had to make certain decisions, is availability. It's not typically a watch out trap for me. I would typically say overconfidence, false analogy are watch out traps for me, those two at least and maybe a little bit of snap judgment. But this particular situation that I had to make decisions around was one where I had last winter, as COVID was starting to happen, I also had diagnosis of a form of cancer that there were multiple, multiple possible treatments for. It wasn't just one where they say, oh, we go in and we do this, and that different doctors would have different opinions around what one should do, uh, that there wasn't just a simple, easy prognosis. And there was tons of information that could be learned. And obviously, right away, one of the traps, by the way, we talk about is information overdose. This is going to be a little bit of an aside here. But I was very aware of that trap because you could go down a whole lot of rabbit holes from an information overdose standpoint. And we live in a world where more information about certain things is only a double click away on your computer. And in some ways, it makes it even more difficult to make a decision. We call it information overdose, by the way, because it's something you can do to yourself as well as something that can get done to you. So that was clearly a trap. I was very aware of that for myself. And so I really established some rules for myself around collecting information, reading the information, asking questions based on that information, et cetera, et cetera. But one that surprised me a little bit, but I don't know that had I not understood the potential of this trap, 
I would have been as aware of in the way that I was. And that was that as I consulted with various doctors, it often seemed like the last doctor I talked with. So if I talked to a doctor three weeks ago, two weeks prior, and now I am now talking to a doctor today, that that doctor I was talking to today would have undue influence on me. All of a sudden, they'd be giving their perspective, their view, their idea of what I should do. And I would find myself very much swayed by it and realizing that, oh, wait a second. Well, there's a particular trap and it's called availability. And availability is all about the latest information that you're getting. It could be in terms of news that you hear, or it could be somebody sharing an opinion with you or information that's out there. Sometimes it can be very dramatic information or one way they're essentially overly influencing a decision that you're making. And so for me, the catch myself in the act part of it was I get off the phone because we were doing you know phone and virtual consults at this point because we weren't literally able to go in and meet face to face. I get off the phone and I'd be going, wow, that doctor just shared something and maybe I'm going to make a different decision as a result of it, or maybe I need to go do with that doctor. And I would all of a sudden say, wait a second here, that's just one piece of information in the context of a number of pieces of information. And just because I talked to that doctor last does not mean that that should have undue weight in my larger decision-making process about the particular treatment that I was going to go get. And so that first time it happened, it was like, I was like a light bulb went off. And with every subsequent doctor, it was just one piece of the puzzle. But I was conscious of not allowing myself to be overly swayed by the, the, the last person I talked to and just seeing it as one piece of information in a larger context of information that I needed to make a good decision. If I'd not been aware of that trap, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to be as clearly able to consider the information in a rational way that was coming in. And I might have been swayed. And there were a couple of points where just given everything that was going on with COVID, relatively quick decisions about getting in and getting certain things done needed to happen because hospitals were closing down and other stuff like that. And I might have been overly swayed and made judgments or decisions that later on I wished that I had waited a little bit or thought about a little bit more. And you know, we see it all the time. We see availability show up in decisions just based on there's a, a news report or there's some sort of competitor who's done something out there and we overweight it in the decision-making process where you talked about base rates earlier, where if we just looked at base rates of the likelihood of a particular occurrence happening or something happening, we would recognize that we didn't need to give it quite the precedence that we did in that context. Just a couple reactions to, to that story. One is this idea that medical decision-making, it's very complicated. And, and what you experience is something that I think many of us are experiencing. It's just a general trend, which is the medical decision-making is shifting more to the patient. So in the past, let's go back 30, 40 years, you would go to a doctor with a cancer diagnosis and they would tell you what your treatment's going to be. There wasn't a lot of options. And now you become a part of the, as the patient, you, you are now involved in the decision-making process, which this goes all the way back to the beginning of our, of our interview here, where we talked about the importance of upskilling our decision-making, of getting better at decision-making, because these decisions, this is just another example of where decision-making is moving into our lives in ways that it hasn't in the past, where we need to get better, we need to be constantly improving. So, so I just wanted to make that point. And I, another thought came up as you were telling the story, it reminded me of Ray Dalio. Who wrote the book Principles. And Ray Dalio, of course, is a billionaire. He's, he is the founder of Bridgewater Hedge Fund, one of the most successful hedge funds on Wall Street. And Ray had a medical problem as well. And because he's a billionaire, he was able to do this. But what, what Ray Dalio did was he had gone out and talked to various doctors and they had give, given him and provided him conflicting strategies and options for treatment. And so what Ray was able to do was to get the doctors together on the phone or on a Zoom call in some way and have them talk to one another. And then he could sort of observe this, this back and forth of ideas, which sounds rather ideal. Now, us mere mortals, it's harder to get these doctors to, you know, they don't want to do that, by the way, I'm, I'm guessing. But he was able to do it because he's Ray Dalio and for whatever reason. But you had to sort of do that in your mind. You had to put these options aside and objectively later on, really objectively try to look at them and not just be overly swayed by the last doctor you talked to. And that's a little bit harder, but you were able to do it. I would say that, in fact, another book I would recommend to anybody who is facing this sort of thing is called How Doctors Think by Jerome Groupman. 
it's all about decision-making and it's all about the traps that are out there, both from a medical diagnosis standpoint and also just in terms of the doctor-patient relationship and the way they play themselves out. Very powerful book. And I had read that book, by the way, before all of this had started to happen in my own world, just because I was curious from a decision-making standpoint about that's an arena where decisions are really, really important and being able to make the best decisions are really important. And you're right. None of us can maybe quite pull the levers that Ray Dalio can pull. But what we do have the ability is to create conversation in our discussions with doctors by bringing in our discussions with other doctors. It's a tricky skill, but I definitely found myself doing that. Whereas I would talk to two or three doctors as I had, I would say, well, when I talk to this doctor, when I talk to this doctor, here's data that they focused on, here's what they talked about. And so I would bring that into my conversation with the next doctor in a way. And you feel like you're challenging the doctor in some sort of a way to do it. But I, I did it really from the spirit of inquiry. And you know, we're trying to figure out what the best route to go is. And let me tell you about different perspectives I've heard already. And then I would oftentimes say, and I'm sure you know you have a strong perspective and it may be based on the specialty that you have and whatever it is. And I would actually say something that was, because there's another trap that's out there that's a very powerful one, which is called self-interest that if what I'm hearing from you appears to come to me from self-interest trap, I'll flag that immediately. <laughs> I'll be aware of it. So I did this process of, of bringing the conversation of all of the doctors into each and every conversation when I had the ability to do that because I couldn't get them in the room together. And, and in fact, in the COVID reality, it was even less of an opportunity to do that because doctors oftentimes will have conferences with other doctors and they'll do that in one way or another if you can orchestrate that. Uh, and as I got closer to a decision, I had one of the doctors that I was a medical oncologist who was going to be part of the treatment potentially just sort of stop at, after we'd been on the phone video conference for about half an hour. And she just said, wow, you're approaching this so differently than pretty much all the other patients that we talk about with this sort of stuff. She, she just kind of stopped. And, and I said, wow. And she said, you're just asking very different kind of questions and you're moving through a process around making a decision that isn't something I've typically seen. And I said, well, <laughs> maybe I'm applying some of my own medicine to myself here. You know, I didn't necessarily know that I was going to have to do that. But she said, yeah, I've just been very impressed with the questions you've been asking and the way you've been asking them. And uh, I felt good about that. I don't think it was, uh, you know, facile praise on her part. And so then I actually went over to my bookshelf and I pulled off this book and I said, you know, I'm a student of decision making and uh, I think a lot about how do we make decisions. And I also thought a lot about it in the context of, you know, medical decision making. And she smiled and she went over to her bookcase and she showed back up in a video thing with the same book and she held it up. She was actually a student of Jerome Groupman at Harvard at one point earlier. And so that she said, yeah, so I just, I guess I didn't realize, but yeah, a lot of the questions you're asking are reflective of some of the points that he makes in his book. And his book is that the collective intelligence, the collective skill of decision-making in a, in a medical world where more of it's getting pushed on the patient is in the dialogue that occurs between the patient and the doctor. And patients are, would be really well served in asking really good questions and creating the conditions where that dialogue is going to be the best possible kind of dialogue to get to the best decision. But we as patients are not terribly skilled at that. And doctors don't necessarily get that training either. And so, I mean, they're more and more getting some of that training, but they're still woefully unprepared to sometimes do that because they come in with, I'm the expert. Here's my expertise mindset. My job is to give you advice in one way or another versus maybe engage in a certain kind of dialogue that is a mutual dialogue. And so we as patients or potential patients have the opportunity to, to kind of stop the conversation where it's just a one-way conversation and really ask certain kinds of questions that ups the intelligence of the doctor's ability to make good decisions or do good diagnosis. It's hard to do because doctors are incredibly time-pressed and uh, you know they don't have a whole lot of extra time to kind of creatively problem solve with you. And so it does take a little bit of skill. But uh, I think more and more, we're all in that place right now where we, as we are trying to make good decisions, we're doing it in context of imperfect information and ambiguity. And it's through the dialogue that we have with the other professionals in that space that we get to the best decisions. I totally agree with you, Brent. And I, I think the analogy or the example of the patient-doctor relationship and how it's transformed over the past you know, 10 or 20 years to become more of a collaborative decision-making process and how there's an expert, the, the doctor or physician, and then there's the patient who's, who is now able to do a lot of research and that they were not able to do in the past and is able to 
bring their perspective there. You know, the patient is an expert of your experience, your body, your, your history, how you think you might react to certain treatments. So the best decision will be collaborative. And I want to just connect that back to where we started, which was executives and organizations. I think decision-making traditionally has been very top-down, kind of paternalistic, like the physician-patient decision-making in the past. It was like that in business. And and as I look around, businesses evolve, the best organizations, the innovative organizations are are pushing decisions down. They're not as top-down. They are having those collaborative decision-making conversations. There's an expert in the room, but there's also, you know, there may be an expert in marketing in the room, but there's an expert from engineering and together they have to make the best decision. And, and uh, for that reason, all of these decision-making tools are going to be helpful in those environments. So is there anything else about availability that would help us make better decisions, Brent? This is a little bit of a humorous level, Sean. Well, it might make you make a better decision with your family when you go to the beach. But I often will ask a group of people, how many of you are slightly nervous about, or at least you know, think, wow, there could be sharks out there when you go to the ocean and you go swimming with your family? And typically 80, 90% of people raise their hands. And so then I say, have any of you maybe thought maybe I shouldn't go swimming or whatever it is. And, you know, there's always a percentage of folks who raise their hands in that context. And in fact, I even had one gentleman one time basically say he prohibits his kids from swimming in the ocean. Uh, He doesn't go to the ocean. He doesn't let them swim in the ocean because there could be sharks out there. And I I thought to myself, wow, wow, that's too bad. He lived on it. He lived in Southern California too, of all places. But, you know, the statistics around shark attacks is pretty revealing. They're really on a statistical basis, base rate statistics are very, very few shark attacks. We hear about them because they're dramatic, because they're vivid. We imagine somebody getting their arm torn off or whatever it might be. So it could have been in South Africa that it took place or, or off of Australia or, or off of the coast of Maine, which actually happened this summer where I grew up. And there's never, ever been a recorded shark attack before this summer. But all of a sudden, everybody all over, you know, you get it through media so quickly, it happens so quickly, and it's dramatic, and it's vivid, and sticky in our brain in one way or another, so we think about it. And so then we don't want to go swimming in the ocean in one way or another. And yet the likelihood in our society that getting killed by a shark attack is very, 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 very low. There are more people bitten by other people, according to various data that we have collected, more people bitten by other people in New York City than are actually bitten by sharks in an annual basis. And that's crazy numbers. But the other piece of data that I've come across is more people are killed by coconuts every year than are killed by sharks. Well, how could that be? Well, you know, you're lying out in your hammock, you're having a Mai Tai or whatever it is, and a coconut falls out of the tree and whack, you're gone. And there are more people killed by vending machines every year than are killed by sharks. And you think, well, how could that happen? Well, you put your card in, you put money in, whatever it is, whatever thing doesn't come out. You start shaking the vending machine. Next thing you know, it tips over on you and you're a goner. So we don't read about that. We read about the shark attack, you know, that took place in some faraway place. And, uh, and we, we think this could happen to me. And so the same is true with flying in terms of the potential for plane crashes. I mean, we have other stuff going on now around flying, but, but for sure. Over the years, as we've all flown, there are a lot of folks who are nervous about flying. And yet, my most dangerous part of my day is when I'm driving to the airport, if I'm flying somewhere, not when I'm on the plane. That's just a little bit of background around the availability trap. We could talk about so many traps because there's others out there that uh, I would love to talk about. And there's techniques and strategies around how do you avoid them? And particularly in the group or organizational context, how do you put in place conditions where those traps are less likely to occur or catch yourself in the moment where? You know, one of those traps could cause you to make a less than good decision, or it could affect your decision negatively. We'll have to have you back on at some point, Brent, to talk about more traps and continue to learn about them and incorporate some of these lessons into our decision making so we can make better decisions in an organizational context, in an investment business context, and in a personal context. And we think about our lives. Brent, where can people find out more about what you do and, and your program, Decision Mojo, and, and your work around decision-making? Uh, probably the easiest thing to do would be just to go to our website, which is www.10,000feet.com. And that is a one word all spelled out in those spaces, 10,000feet.com. So www.10,000feet.com. You'll see a little bit there. 
And uh, also, people can email me directly at brent at 10,000feet.com. And that 10,000 feet image is really all about going up and seeing yourself, seeing your world, seeing your decisions from a higher perspective, making decisions from a higher perspective. And so that's the, where the 10,000 feet comes from. Great. Brent, thank you for being on The Good Life. It's a pleasure, John. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.